Hi, my name is Ben and welcome to Field and Foley episode 3. My guest today is Jess Riley French. He's a sound artist from Yorkshire who runs workshops and lectures on his art practices. He has a passion for capturing the overlooked details of life through his recorded work and creative output, which focuses on themes of audible silence, active listening and stillness. For exploring these themes, he develops and builds specialized microphones, which have been widely used in all areas of sound culture. So, Jess, uh, welcome and thanks for taking your time. Yeah, thanks for the invite. So, the first thing I, I'd always like to ask my guests is, um, why did you record your first sound and what was it? Uh, okay, so I was given um, a little cassette recorder by my mother for, I think, my 12th or 13th birthday. I think it was my 12th birthday, a long time ago now. Um, mainly for recording like radio programs and also I was I had a... I was given a guitar as well, so to record myself practicing. But the first kind of um, field recording, if you like, was I was listening back to one of the radio programs um, the next day in the garden, and it was one of those cassette recorders where the the record and the play button were kind of right next to each other. So mm -hmm. I, pressed, <laughs> I pressed record instead of play by mistake, and I didn't realize for about five, five or so minutes, you know, because... Um, Suddenly, there was no, no music coming out, um, but because I was so young, I didn't. I didn't kind of think, "Oh, I've messed that tape up." I actually listened back straight away to the recording just to see see what I'd recorded, uh, thinking it would just record me running about the garden or whatever I was doing. But of course, as probably most people listening to this program know, when you record through a microphone, any kind of microphone, even if it's a little little one on a cassette recorder you hear things that you didn't hear with your with your ears, you know, because we filter out so much. Yeah. So I was hearing all these sounds, all these kind of sounds of you know, gardens several several houses away and, and rumbles and things that I said, What's that? you know so, and it, I, I, again I was so young that I just kind of didn't didn't differentiate between that and the music that was should have been on the cassette. Uh, and I think that was important for me because I didn't start thinking of them as two different practices at that time when I was so young. I didn't filter it out as like, oh, that's that's just noise or sound, and that's music, you know. Um, so, so that was the first accidental field recording, if you like. Well, <laughs> I did. I didn't know that's what it was called then, you know. Yeah, of course, and that's very interesting. So you you went into field recording right away. Uh, so you don't you didn't came to it via, via music or let me ask you this way: What was your next steps, your journey after that to go into field recording? Uh, yeah, no, I didn't know. I didn't know anything about it. Um, so, so I just carried that little tape recorder around and would record, record other things other than music. You know, um, didn't really have any understanding. I mean, this was the, the early days of um, punk and new wave. Hmm. Um, so my musical knowledge was fairly limited to those fields, and obviously pop culture because that's everywhere, um, and a little bit of classical. And it wasn't really until, I suppose I probably heard some field recordings on programs like John Peel when he was playing maybe some industrial music, early industrial music or music concrete, things like that. But I didn't really connect that to, to what I was doing because I was too young, really. Um, I think it wasn't until maybe 81, 1981, 82, when I really started to understand that there was this practice out there of, of people using field recordings or, or found sound. To, to create work um, and again that this is the days before the internet so my access to that material was quite limited and, and I didn't grow up in a, in a big city I grew up in a uh, just outside quite a small kind of provincial town in the UK or city in the UK but um, so there wasn't much access in terms of other people doing it or or uh, record shops that stocked it so it was quite it was quite limited Why did you decide then uh, to build your own microphones? Um, came, did this came much later, or was it like a, the exploration phase already? Uh, I, I think I was 14 or 15, and I went to see a, a band called Crass, who were like an anarchist punk group. Um, I actually went to see the support acts, which was Annie Anxiety, Little Annie, as she's now known. 
who did an amazing set just with radios and a voice, which was just fantastic. I'd never seen anything like that. It was amazing. Um, and, and a group called Poison Girls. But anyway, they were selling various publications, which they used to do at, at, the, at their gigs, uh, lots of anarchist kind of books and things like that. And I bought one, like a newspaper, anarchist newspaper, which was mainly music-focused. In the back of that, it had a build-your-own-guitar pickup um, mm. thing, which is a very primitive piezo-element-based guitar pickup. Um, so I thought, oh, I'll have a go at that. So I built that, because by that time I was playing zithers. Um, I, got, I got into playing zithers uh, for some bizarre reason. I can't remember <laughs> why. I think it's because it was the cheapest, the little sort of toy zither was the cheapest thing in the music shop, and I thought, I'm going to go buy an instrument. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I bought this little German toy, red, bright red toy zither, which I've still got. Anyway, um, so I decided to build one to, to amplify the zithers. Uh, and that was my first one, really super primitive and really you know, not a very good sound. But the, a key moment for me was I was record, I decided to record this was outside because of this fascination with the outside still. Mm. Um, and I was faffing around with my cables, trying to plug my cable the cable into the recorder and set everything up and i just hung the cable on a fence um it was near a church and there was a fence around this church church's land and i just hung it on this fence and it kind of half slipped off off so the element was touching the wire of the of the the fence and it was plugged into my tape recorder and i had my headphones in so i suddenly heard this kind of tone coming from this it's why I thought, oh my God, that's better than what I was going to do with the zither. <laughs> so that was my first kind of, you know, abstract contact mate recording, if you like. Uh, and then I just decided to, you know, I mean, it, I faffed around with those very primitive um, DIY designs for, for a few years. It wasn't until I was, I think, 16 or 17 that, that I kind of started to build a bit, a bit better ones, you know, kind of more stable ones. Mm-hmm. Your journey in, in the microphones is uh, what actually brought me to you because um, mm. the first thing I heard about you was to contact microphones um, over some, some crazy journey. But um, uh, then I, I got into your microphones and the first time I held it in my hand, it was really uh, like a, a world opened up for me because um, in the beginning I was always going out with the intention of recording something, mm. any mm. Sp special place or any noise. And then you had the sound pollution and you had anything like a plane flying overwards and I was really frustrated. But um, with going into like the contact microphones, I found that, um, as you all, all also said in some of your lectures and, and your videos, um, you can always find something interesting if you are open to it. Um, mm. what, what interests me is your practice of durational listening, of really staying in a place for multiple hours. How did you come to that? Is it like, did it evolve naturally or did you just decide to look if the sound would change at all, something like that? Um. Well, I think I think I think there's two things. I was always really fascinated with the listening rather than the the sound collecting. Like I said, when I was quite young, when I, when I did start to meet other people who were into um, sound, you know, rather than pure music, and with all respect to them, hmm. they were a very particular type of guy. Usually, <laughs> <laughs> we all know them. You know, the kind of sound geek guys who were quite uh, <laughs> well. Yeah, they were. I mean, it's better now, but but back in the eighties, let me tell you, it, it was it was uh, incredibly sexist, and I was already kind of rebelling against various um, traits of, of of male gender. So, um, uh, so I was kind of put off the whole sound collecting thing. Mm -hmm. um, but the the thing with contact mics, which led me, because it was contact mics really that led me into the durational listening in one sense, is that it's you, you can't predict what you're going to hear. Um, we, we can't when we go out with just with our ears or with normal microphones either, but this culture of sound has kind of subliminally taught us that we think we can predict it. Um, and I think that's one of the, the kind of major lessons in, in field recording, field practice, if you like, is to get over that hurdle of if you go out with an intention, that's kind of the wrong approach because mm -hmm. you can't control what's out there. But anyway, um, in my early 20s, I, I was in, working in the music industry and me and my then partner in, in life and in business decided to set up our own distribution company. So I couldn't do much um, sort of field recording for a long time. You know, I was still busy with that. Um, and it wasn't until 
around 1999, uh, we decided to sell that company um, for, for personal reasons, including the fact that my mother had become very ill and sadly passed away. So it was just time to do something else. And I'm not keen on the kind of idea that field listening or whatever is 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 always like um, therapeutic. But at that time in my life, I, I needed something that made me stop. Do you know what I mean? Just physically stop. And field recording is great for that because unless you want yourself in the recording, you have to be quite still. Mm-hmm. And it was it was in the years after that, a couple of years after after that, so 2000 2001, that I noticed that I was just staying listening to one thing or one space. And it was getting longer and longer. I was enjoying it more and more and more. And crucially, hearing more and more and more. Because the longer you listen, the more your sort of um, subconscious filters start to, to fade away and you start to actually hear what's there rather than what you think is there. So it was that, it was that period, 2000 onwards, where I, I got quite heavily into stretching the duration of, of how long I listened for, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's, that's really nice. And... To connect with that, how did you come up with the idea of rigging up like an actual physical place? Um, uh, of course, thinking of, uh, of things like the Tate Modern, where you Ooh. rigged up the whole museum and stayed in there for several nights yeah. um, to record its essence, um, so to say. How did that come about? Uh, I've always been quite interested in architecture. Um, so I was kind of, once I started recording and could spend a decent amount of time on it, which I did as well in my teens and early 20s, but um, once I could get kind of get into buildings and get access to them, um, it was just natural for me to think, well, I want to hear what this building sounds like, not just not just the kind of people in it or the you know the ambient spaces, if you like, but I want to hear the structure of the building. Um, so that was that was quite natural to me. It was it was something I always wanted to do, but when I was younger, I didn't didn't have the technology. I mean, that's the other thing that's, um, as, and again, anybody listening will know is that the advances in the technology have been amazing in terms of recorders. You know, when I was in my teens and early 20s, I was still working with cassette recorders or small reel-to-reel recorders, which were great for some things and still mm. are. You know, they're still good for some things. But if you want to record structural vibration, which is often, relatively speaking, a very low um, level, you know, in terms of intensity, for recorders, uh, volume, volume as in you know, decibel level, um, then you do need really quite powerful and, and quiet preamplifiers. Um, so it, it wasn't until, I think the first building I did was actually Kettle's Yard in Cambridge, which is a, uh, it used to be three cottages, but the, the owners knocked it into one house and it's now a, a museum. Um, and that, that had a personal resonance for me, that place. I used to visit there quite often, including with my mom. So I wanted to get access to there and just record that building. That was the first audible silence work, if you like, where I was recording the, the entire building moving and, and, and resonating. Um, yeah, so it was something I always wanted to do, and it was it was that thing of having access, you know, having some kind of um, career or... Because, I mean, that's another change, really. Back in, back in the sort of early 2000s, even, it was quite hard to get access to a public building unless you were somebody. And I wasn't and I wasn't particularly known for that, but I was known in the music industry. And I knew a few people at Kettle's Yard because they run a music program as well. So I had an in, if you see what I mean. Now it's different. You know, most most institutions are quite open to young artists coming forward with ideas and but back then it was quite <laughs> it was quite tricky. Yeah, I can imagine that. I I'm having also problems with some places I would love to record, but they are quite strict about. Um, oh yeah, it's still. I mean, it's. I don't know if I don't know if it's global, but I think I think it's going backwards now. You know, mm. because of security and all kinds of other things. But um, there was like a golden a golden period when sound art and field recording were becoming much more sort of present and and. And I say popular, but you know, well known, shall we say, mm-hmm. to, to organisations that they were kind of interested and up for it. Um, but I mean, probably they get swamped with requests for people to come in now and say, can I, can I stick a contact mic on your boiler? You know, um, <laughs> well, yeah. Could you maybe walk us through how you set like a building up? Um, if you go in there, how mm. do you choose where to put and what microphones to use? Um, do you have like your your standard kit every time, or do you like choose it based on location? Um, what's your process there? 
Well, obviously, it depends quite a lot on what access I can get. Um, if I have sort of decent access over a, a number of days, then I, I tend to spend the first day just kind of experimenting. I never go in with an idea. Um, even though I've recorded lots of buildings now, I never go in thinking, I know where I'm going to put those microphones. I think that's a, a, a big mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you miss out on those kind of happy accidents and, and that kind of those kind of, and also I think for the motivational thing for me it's about that kind of exciting discovery. So if I'm predicting what I think I'm going to do, then that lessens a bit. I like just kind of wandering around as if I'm doing it for the first time in a way, just trying microphones in different places and and also listening to the building with my ears and just kind of observing it in a different way. It's like when I did the tape building for example that's a building that i've been to lots of times but when you know you've got access to it 24 hours a day you perceive it differently you know you you kind of observe it differently um so yeah so the first day i'll spend experimenting if i've got the time and and trying different things and i do always carry my little kit with me my sort of basic standard kit if you like it fits in a like a photographer's backpack side backpack if I'm doing a building, then obviously sometimes I'm using lots of microphones. So I'll I'll bring a you know case with me with uh, lots of different microphones, contact microphones mainly, uh, some small DPA microphones which I like to use, uh, Sanken microphones sometimes, and also I'll I'll bring coils and ultrasonic detectors and and things that will pick up other frequencies like the the lighting systems or things like that. Oh, and geophones. I use industrial geophones, uh, which I've adapted as well. Yeah, I've I've read that on your webpage that you are currently um, experimenting with those types. Um, maybe on that topic, do you have any plans for future new microphones you you will be able maybe to sell? Um, especially, of course, I'm interested in the geophones because I've started playing around with the Lom Audio one, which you mm. I think are already familiar with. But I really like to go into more. I like the scientific equipment stuff, but the thing I can find, as you already mentioned on your site, it's it's very it's scientific ex- uh, equipment, so it's very expensive, mm, yeah. and it's also probably not easy to get the sound out of there. Exactly, yeah. No, I mean I, I do have a plan at the moment to to do a version of the ones I use myself because it's a long process to adapt them. It's really fiddly, and they're not particularly mm-hmm. stable. I mean, I've gone through maybe. I mean, my, with my contact mics, the C-series contact mics, I'm still using a pair I built about 10, 12 years ago. So they're really stable and really durable. With the geophones that I'm adapting, I've gone through maybe 10 in the last five or six years. Mm. Just, I mean, I've still got them. They still work. But the, the, the way you adapt them is kind of quite unstable and quite, quite delicate. So there's that aspect. The other aspect is, and I'm aware of two manufacturers now who are selling geophones to the public. I won't name them, but... The thing is, we can't record below 10 hertz with our digital recorders anywhere. They all have an inbuilt limiter. You have to hack the recorder, which is not something I would recommend people do. I'm, I'm lucky I had a hack that the, the, the builder of the recorders that I use had for, for mainly for natural history units who wanted to record like elephant calls, which are often in the infrasonic range. So they, they built a software hack specifically for that and i managed to get that they don't issue it anymore uh, and they never issued it publicly it was just like a private thing for a few a few people which i, I just happened to persuade <laughs> persuade them to give me <laughs> uh, which is a real shame i don't think there's any reason why recorders have that 10 hertz i think it's purely like a legislation thing in terms of what might hurt somebody's ears or might damage the equipment in mm. in, in theory but not in practice um so yeah, so we can we can't record below ten hertz. So with the C series contact mics, they can get down to thirteen hertz. So there's those extra three hertz. There's there's no real benefit to to to, to releasing a geophone, which would cost, you know, it would be expensive mm-hmm. because most people will not be able to record infrasound with it. You may as well use a C series microphone with a decent recorder, and then use some software to kind of extract the the lower frequencies from that. Yeah, that's my that's, that's my point. thinking. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I could I could release something. I could. I, I know there's a hunger for it. And that, <laughs> this comes to a, like an ethical thing as well. Is I mean, I, I've been asked you know hundreds of times to sell geophones, and I don't feel comfortable doing that when I know that they're not particularly stable, mm-hmm. and that and that 
the recorders won't be able to record infrasound with them. It's kind of, you know, unless they've got a hack as well. Yeah. So it's like a, a niche of a niche of a niche. It's like a really, really long way down the chain. Um, yeah. So maybe besides geophones, any other parts that you're interested in recording? I mean, um, is there anything left? <laughs> Probably. I'm sure there is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't, like, for example, there's VLF, you know, the, which is the, uh, the sort of radio frequency fallout of events in the ionosphere. Mm -hmm. But there are other people making VLF receivers, so I'm not somebody who thinks, if somebody else is doing it and doing it well, like uh, Steve McGreary, who makes VLF receivers, and there's an Italian company whose name I've forgotten who made them, and they're very good. So I'm not going to try and make their business. You know, I don't do that. I think there's an ethical point to that. Um, same with ultrasonic detectors, you know, for, for infrasound. There are great people making infrasound detectors. Like, you know, I don't, I don't want to make another one that will impact their business. They're, they're nice people. Mm -hmm. So, um, but in terms of what else is out there, yeah, I mean, the stuff with hydrophones is interesting. I, I make kind of um, hydrophones that are a reasonable price for most people and they're calibrated for freshwater and saltwater. Mm -hmm. But in terms of deep, deep sea hydrophone, um, there are some interesting results starting to appear around sort of ultrasonics and infrasonics in in, in hydrophone technology. But again, that, because we're you're talking about deep, deep oceans and a lot of pressure, you know, on on the capsules, I think that will remain the re the preserve of scientific manufacturers because it's they're heavy, they're expensive, you know, and the, the, the amount of testing you need on them. And government approval is is quite intense. Yeah, yeah and then there's also like <laughs> the whole logistics of getting out there in the ocean and getting a yeah. microphone deep enough to get something. Exactly. Yeah. And and yeah, then we also start to get into like the ethical territory mm. of are you is it like a good idea morally to or ethically to go out there and disturb like deep sea creatures? Um, yeah, it's this is. I mean, I think this is. I mean, I've always been interested in this actually because. When I first started to meet, and it wasn't for a long time, when I met anybody else who was interested in field recording, I met a few musicians, experimental musicians who were doing it around Yorkshire. Mm -hmm. But the first time I met somebody who called themselves a field recordist, they were definitely a nature recordist and, and only interested in birds. You know what I mean? It was that kind of, uh, you know, field recording meets birds. Um, and, and, I, and I started to have questions then of, of what, what's happening here on an ethical or... I don't even I don't even think I thought about it in an ethical sense because I was too young. I was just thinking thinking about you've already decided what's there before you get there. And that kind mm -hmm. of question, that initial question got me to think about other things, like for example, you know, going out to environments and disturbing them. Um and of course they, I mean these com I think these conversations are fascinating, but they go full circle because for a long time there was this kind of idea of Well, you must wear camouflage. You must try not to disturb, not, you know, the natural world. You put your recorder and your microphones, and you you walk back, or you work on long cables, you know, hundreds of meters away. The truth is, is firstly, all the other species they know where they're or have been there. Mm -hmm. We cannot we cannot hide from them. Yeah. The other thing is, is some of them don't even care or don't even perceive us in that sense. So, I always find it quite funny when bird watchers have all this kind of really expensive clothing to make them invisible. The birds know they're there. He <laughs> can walk in, in, you know, in bright, luminous pink. It's not going to make any difference. They'll still know you're there. You know, they're much yeah. cleverer than we are, most species. Um, but yeah, the, we we have to think about that more and more. Uh, you know, I, I I can't go into the details, but there was a recent uh, situation in in the arts with a, with a, an artist which brought up lots of ethical questions. And what I found fascinating about that discussion, which involved the organization that they were working with, was how creaky and how still, um, uh, how can I put it, under-resourced the ethical discussions can be. And I'm not blaming anybody for that. I think there are structural issues in, in organizations and, and the arts in general. But ethical discussions, which we think of now as, as being fine and totally out there, you know, there's ethical You can, you can find conferences and everything about every aspect of what we do. But the actual practical 
mechanics of how we deal with practical, with ethical issues um, is a little bit creaky still, yeah. Yeah. which is surprising. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. I'm, I'm trying to, I mean, in the beginning, people used to tell um, each other, if you go out in nature, um, leave it as you find it, so, so don't leave mm. any trash around. But I think we, we will have to adapt and change and um, maybe take trash, back, trash bags with us. And if you are out there recording, maybe just take some trash out there with us to make it better. Mm. Um, that might leave a better impression on that. But I mean, yeah, that's, that's all very like small things, simple people can do. But um, yeah, on a grand scale... It's interesting because, as you said, ethically, also with like building stuff, um, sourcing materials, you mentioned on your website as well, um, it's not easy to find out where all that stuff has come from mm. and how to get like a real, yeah, the, um, get a real insight into the whole chain of it. So it's quite, it's quite a dilemma. I mean, if you think, I think most people who do field recording to any sort of extent are people who also care about the environment. But probably one of the largest <laughs> impacts they're going to have is the equipment that they take out there because it's a lot of it involves metals and rare metals and, mm -hmm. and plastics. You know, so <laughs> really the best thing we can do to the environment is to stop what we're doing immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, I mean, there's, the other thing is, of course, is that uh, field recording has gone a long way to, to contribute into to awareness of environmental damage you know it still has that role which is very important yeah absolutely there are people out there like um i think bernie krause was his name who mm. are recording um, different environments like every year and showing the progress of how the sound changes how yeah. animals get quieter um how we impact that directly which is i think a very important work and um, it's very yeah. easy to convey to people because you can show it to them. You can say, "Listen to this recording five years ago, and to this now, and yeah, to this, yeah. and to this," and you, you you really feel the decline. So, and there's lots lots of work, kind of by people with less public profile. You know, sort of sound ecologists and you know ecoacoustics people in universities who were who were doing that great work sort of exploring. Um, you know, sort of do, doing sort of deep data gathering of, of environments. You know, it's, it's And using using things like contact mics and hydrophones, and uh, that's I mean that's changed massively in the last ten um, fifteen years. You know the the access we have now to insect life through using contact mics or hydrophones. And, uh, you know, I mean I, I suppose going back to what you said earlier about what's next is one of the things that I do a lot, um, which I think is growing in in sort of interest. Uh, with other recorders, is I I do a lot of plant recording and also soil. Uh, recording, mm -hmm. uh, which I adapt uh, contact mics and hydrophones for that, and that's a kind of growing area of interest. You know, I, I notice a lot more sort of academics now uh, doing surveys on soil, uh, you know, soil vibration and things like that. So that's um, that's that's probably a good thing. And and plant recording, you know, recording the insides, you know, the internal sort of um, uh, systems of plants. You know, uh, that's that's an interesting field as well. It's a very very interesting part. So how how do you approach this? Do you go buy it with like scientific equipment and then translate it into sound, or do you use like as you said before, like ultrasonic stuff? Um, because I have no idea about insides of plants. That's but it's it fascinated me right away. So <laughs> well, it's it's I I use my C series contact mics and my D series hydrophones, uh, and sometimes I adapt them. So I attach various probes to them. And mm -hmm. Uh, again, it's it's quite it's quite a sort of delicate job sometimes, and of course, you bringing back the ethical thing, you you have to get permission and you have to be careful because you can't go around sticking sticking probes in plants if it's going to kill them. Mm. That's, that would be a divine point. Um, but sometimes you're digging down into the root systems and, and and accessing like larger trees that way and things like that. Um, yeah, there's various ways. I mean, it's people have done it for for a long time like scientists have done it you know usually by attaching attaching sensors which pick up kind of electromagnetic yeah, signals yeah. and of course i'm sure a lot of people will be aware there are various musical devices that do that where you can attach a sensor and it, it it's kind of sonified and plays like nice twinkly music of plants. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah, the actual I always, i always find this interesting but it it didn't translate for me like the essence of of what it would sound like because it was more for me it was more like a okay it maybe measures like um the the wetness of the plant or maybe yeah. some kind of uh, electricity and then tries to yeah emulate the sound out of that or 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 translate it to some values but 
mm. I've always found it kind of detached of the plant itself because you can also yeah put it on your hands. Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's a valid musical. I mean I'm not I'm not against that. It's a valid musical mm-hmm. thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm not saying but what I'm saying is is the actual the actual sounds of plants are fantastic and amazing too. You know, they're actually just as beautiful or whatever you want to think of. I mean, the beauty is a problematic word in this sense as well, mm-hmm. but they're just as captivating as that, as that kind of, you know, sonified version of a plant signal. They're, they're I mean, for me, they're more so, you know, but, um, yeah, like, I, I think that's one, of, again, one of those kind of basic things with field recording is, um, you know, you can have people making, composing music that's supposed to evoke nature nature doesn't need evoking it's it's <laughs> fantastic and amazing and beautiful and powerful and terrifying and whatever it's all out there it's just you have to listen that thing. yeah I, i totally agree um and with with going into uh, this topic of the environment um How did, in your experience, the environmental sound overall changed over the years? I mean, of course, it it became louder, but do you perceive it as just louder or maybe also different? And is there also maybe a trend that it goes backwards now with like battery vehicles, um, electrical vehicles and stuff, hopefully getting less uh, sound polluted in the future? Um, well, I guess I'm... I mean, I was never that much of a nature recordist. So my, lots of my recording was and still is in, in urban environments. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, because I was using unconventional microphones, I, I wasn't sort of as focused on the ambient sound in a way. So I haven't really perceived huge differences in that sense. Uh, it's been fairly constant, um, or it's that's what my memory says. I mean, I'm sure if I went back in time to when I was, 13 or 14, there'd obviously been far less cars on the road, you know, quite obviously. Mm-hmm. Back in, back when I was young, family, if, if a family was lucky, they had one car. Now, you know, just on the street I'm on, there are houses with three or four cars, you know, it's ridiculous. Um, so there are obviously more cars on the road, uh, more flights, you know, there's obviously been a, a change. But I think it's like a lot of things, if it's, if it's a slow change, it's one of the dangers. When it's a slow change, we don't notice it, you know, we just become accustomed to it slowly increasing and we don't really notice it. Which is why some of that work that you mentioned, like Bernie's work, Bernie Krause's work, comparing recordings from a few years ago to now, that's why that's important. Yeah. We don't generally we don't notice it. Um in terms of electrical cars and things like that, I mean I think they're quite interesting. I mean I know there's I think I think in an, within five years electric cars will sound more or less the same as, as petrol cars because there's this great move to put artificial sounds back in them no hopefully not <laughs> well it's, it's happening they don't have a car engine sound but the, the sound that they're producing isn't just what's actually been produced it's a mm-hmm. fake sound being, being emanated because people were concerned that people wouldn't hear them coming things like that um so <laughs> that's interesting but of course for other species none of this matters you know the sound the sound pollution uh you know is there with electrical cars as much as it is with petrol cars You know, because it's, it's about vibrations and electromagnetics and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. So the the more charging points there are, we haven't really explored that properly yet. Uh, the more charging points there are, the more that interferes with bird uh, migration paths because they they do some birds and bats and things like and some insects use electromagnetic fields uh, to to sort of navigate by. Uh, so we haven't really thought about that enough. You know, I'm sure I'm sure some people have whether or not they've taken notice of it or whether governments have suppressed it, I don't know. But there's all that kind of stuff we've got to get into. Yeah, that's a good point. It's also um, very hard to convey to people if if you can't show them like examples of, um, especially with the contact microphones, I found it always easy to <laughs> to impress people or, or maybe not like impress, maybe give them a sense of uh, how much sound there is out there that we can't hear. And mm. um, yeah, also like like you mentioned, also that, that this all affects uh, nature around us. And um, yeah, that's yeah. A, I think that's one of the one of the things, especially when I'm maybe doing a workshop with people who've not done much field recording, they haven't used a contact before. It, it's it's that kind of oh my god kind of moment. There's so much more there, and mm-hmm. that feeds into when we're listening just with our ears, because the contact mics allow us to realize that there is so much more there than we think there is. 
you know, and that's that's kind of one of the wonderful things about about these technologies is that they, they do open up our ears and our minds to to just how narrow our, our species has become in terms of how we think about sound. Now we're incredibly dumb as a species. Yeah. I, I often <laughs> say this, you know, in, in talks as a kind of joke, but any other species, if, if they get together and decide to wipe us out, they could do it because we're so dumb, you know. We, like a cow could meander up behind us without us even hearing it and bash us over the head and we wouldn't realise until it was too late. So the, the first species that decides we, they want us out of here and we're, and we're gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see what you mean, yeah. Um, yeah, maybe um, connecting on that part with um, giving lectures, uh, maybe we can get a bit on the topic of uh, tips for, for newcomers. Do you maybe remember what you struggled with the most starting out and how you overcome it? Um, like... Was there technical issues or, I don't know, maybe not, not having the right kit with you and you were thinking, oh, man, I should have packed that every time? Uh, there are things like that. Um, you know, I think, I think it's, it's tricky because I'm now several, you know, so a few decades on, so my, my understanding now will be different to when I was there. But I think, I think there's two things. It's one is you can have too much equipment. Mm -hmm. like, like, don't get obsessed with the technology. I mean, do if you want to, but but don't don't assume that will solve anything for you. you know? And especially if you're approaching field recording from a creative point of view, like you know, it's music or sound art. It's, it's, it's buying every microphone type and the best recorder will not make good work. That's mm -hmm. Just like just like the most expensive paintbrush in the world will not guarantee you're going to paint a great painting. <laughs> you know, it's what you do with it, and it's how you think about it that matters. So there's that. Um, there are some there are some basics for somebody who wants to get started. Is I would say if you haven't got a large budget, don't wait to save up to buy a really good recorder. Buy buy one that's, that you can afford. Uh, as long as it's halfway decent, I've tried to avoid those really tiny sort of dictaphone ones mm -hmm. if you can. If you especially if you want to do creative field record. Buy one that at least has a few different inputs so you can plug different microphones in and get started because it's doing that, that is the, the great educator and it's doing it. Um, and, I, and I think also um, don't, don't get too obsessed with, um, with kind of trying to reproduce what you've already heard other people doing. I think that's a, a big mistake. You know? I, I was lucky in that I discovered it when I didn't really have any of those kind of reference points. Um, you know, I wasn't trying to think, oh, I, I want to make a piece of music concrete like insert any name. You know, I was just I was just messing around basically and, and kind of experimenting. And I think that's really important. Um so so yeah, just get started. I do carry around my sort of basic kit which has recorder, um, batteries, you know, my, uh, contact mics, hydrophones and some small omni microphones. That's probably the The one thing I would say is if you want to buy um, you know, normal ambient microphones that capture sounders normally, it, it don't get a shotgun microphone because that's mm -hmm. often what people come out of um, colleges or, or school education with thinking they've got to get a shotgun microphone. Shotgun microphones are really specific and they have very specific purposes. If you just want to capture sort of soundscapes and lots of different types of environment, get a small pair of omnis, some of the tiny ones like that you can see sort of attached to people on the news, you know, those tiny lapel kind of size microphones. A small pair of omnis will, will be the most valuable bit of kit in terms of normal microphones. Uh, yeah. And then, and then just start doing it. Start doing it. Yeah. yeah, just putting in the work and the time and experimenting. Uh, I think that's, that's something I, I always hear with um, people telling new um, newcomers in the field that um, just get like um, the thing you can afford and get out there because it's mm. all about the practice and, um, and about feeling, <laughs> learning. Yeah, I mean, we're, you mentioned time there. I mean, time is a really valuable thing and, and yeah. more and more of us don't have much time with the you know, financial pressures that we've got. But I think another tip maybe is, is don't think of, it's, it's kind of breaking down this idea of what, what, what sound is and what nature is if you're interested in environments, for example. Don't think, oh, I'll have to wait until the weekend until I, until I can go, you know, get in my car or get on a train or a bus or whatever and go to wherever. Record everywhere. You know, if you're at work, record. 
<laughs> obviously bearing in mind you, the people you're working with might not want to be recorded but you know record everywhere record your house you know, record you know open the windows if, if it's warm and and just record out of the windows you know it's 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 about the listening the listening matters you know that's the way to access environments is through the listening yeah yeah and that part um is there like any location you have uh, in mind that you always wanted to record but didn't get the chance yet any special place um, I I used to have those kind of lists in my head. Um, it's one of the things I've learned to get rid of um, because it builds up so many sort of um, preconceptions. And, and you know, it, like Kettle's Yard, for example, was one I always wanted to record. So I recognise now, if I listen back to the archive of recordings, I recognise that, that I was def I definitely arrived there with some ideas of what I was going to record. Mm -hmm. And I try as hard as I can not to do that now. The only thing I would say is I have a favorite country, which is Japan. I, I've always been obsessed with lots of aspects of Japanese culture. So put me anywhere in Japan. I don't care where it is, and I'll be happy with my, with my microphones. <laughs> Or without them. I'm just happy to be there. <laughs> just listening. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't have that kind of... Um, I mean, I'm not a sound spotter, so I don't... Unless I've got a commission, which is maybe a specific building or location if it's just me because i think the important thing to say about my work if you like if you call it work is i'd do it even if there was no outlet for it i, I like yep. listening through microphones so that's what i like doing um but i you know i i, I just like to go wherever and, and sometimes i'll listen with with my ears sometimes i'll get some microphones out and quite often i'll listen and i, I won't press record it's not about capturing it it's about listening quite often I'll, I'll listen for hours or something and, I, and it'll, it might be something that's amazing but I won't press record because I, I don't feel that need to, to always collect everything yeah that's that's very interesting indeed and did you ever have a, a moment where after you like really wished you had pressed record or is it like the experience is with you and that was enough for it The second one is what I like to believe. It always happens. That's what I'm aiming for. Uh, yeah, so if, if I'm trying to present myself as some kind of mystical person, I'll say, oh, yes, it's, let it go. But obviously, there'll be times where I think, oh, yeah, I'd like to I'd like to hear that again. Why wasn't I recording when that happened or whatever? Yeah. Um, but most of the time, no, I'm quite happy to leave stuff. I think it's informed my listening. I think I'm a better listener because I don't collect everything. I think if you if you're always focused on collecting things, then however much you try, there'll be a part of your brain which is focused on: is it recording? Is it you know? Are the batteries running out? Is mm -hmm. are the levels okay? Are the levels right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I'm quite okay. I, I'm quite happy. I think it's really important to let some stuff go. I think it it can help you you practice. You know. Um, but having said that, now you've asked that question, if I try and think hard right now off the top of my head. Of anything I've listened to where I think I wish I'd recorded that. I can't think of anything. The only things I can think of is I really wish I had more recordings of my mum, you know, speaking and, and just generally. And my daughter, when she was younger, I wish I had tons and tons of recordings of those things. You know. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that. I have a, a young daughter and I'm, I have some recordings of her already in in the, uh, of the young ages because of course um, as like a sound designer it was my my goal to get some kind of those those laughs and and, yeah. and for example what I find really interesting is how the voice and the laughing and everything changes over time which is interesting to me so um, but I'm definitely yeah I have I have some moments where I was like ah, I wish I recorded that but then yeah. I also was like I experienced it and it's it's for me and it's fine exactly, I don't need yeah. to share it with other people so yeah 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 <laughs> okay um yeah i think i'm all out of questions um so if you have anything maybe you want to promote everything anything you want to shout out um feel free uh i think so i mean i think one thing i mean i'm in the middle of sort of i say i'm in the middle of research i've been researching this since i was a teenager but <laughs> i've always been quite interested in the gendering of sound um you know and that's now much more in, um discussed which is really healthy but uh, the history of field recording in that respect is still really problematic so if you look at something like alan lomax the alan lomax archives they're not the alan lomax archives 
there were the names of about 15 women who were always doing the recordings, always the researchers, you know, who, who should be, whose names should be on that archive. Mm-hmm. And if you look back at the history of field recording, um, if you Google it, for example, you'll hear a few usual names, Ludwig Koch, you know, um, all these kind of names, almost all male. The actual history, if you, if you start to delve into it, if you look back to the 18, late 18, 1800s, um, you know, it was massively female-dominated, massively so. Um, so I'm in the middle of, I'm, not in the middle, I'm researching that. It's a lifelong work, but I'm, I'm trying to write a book on it, but it's taking a while. But I think, but I think this stuff matters. So in terms of what you were saying about uh, tips for people just starting, I think that I think it's important to question the history as part of your practice. If if you're interested in in using it in a in a creative sense, because if you just go in there thinking it's all about these male names, and that extends right up to composers and early sound artists, you know, whether it's John Cage or or you know whoever you want to put in that barrel, again, all massively female dominated. The actual reality was female dominated throughout. So it's really important. Throw away those male names. Go go find the female names who are now, thankfully, starting to be much more present. You know, sound art, for example, the first piece of sound art wasn't 1976. It was it was in the 50s by Atsuko Tanaka, the Japanese artist. You know, find these references because it matters. Because it's all about questioning. And when we listen, we have to constantly question what we're hearing. You know. So you have to question the histories as well. I think it's really important, super important. That's that's a very good point. Yeah, I, I I see that more and more in the in the current future, and it's it's interesting to me because I come from an IT background, and um, in programming there was also always like it was thought of as a male space and a male dominated space, and there are all these great programmers, but then there yeah were so many so many people that. Um, contributed to it over the years, and it came to the surface, and people are getting aware of it, and it's. Um, Yeah, very interesting to see. For for example, John Clark, who broke mm. the mm. the code, the Enigma code in World War II, was yeah. a famous example, and there are others as well. And it's it's always also my um, yeah always was my place to show that it's it's a job that anyone can do, and it's not gender specific, and it's important to to break those stereotypes when you when you when you come to them, and people will start to talk about. Um, in a way that that makes you feel like uh, they think that's a job only a man can do. It's, it it really riles me up. Yeah, and the thing is, it's, it it wasn't a job that was even invented by men. It was invented by women. <laughs> it's just that I mean, historically speaking, and still sadly now, the the male of our species are colonizers. You know, we see a space, we go in and we dominate it. That's our unfortunately, that's that's mm-hmm. the history of our our gender. You know, um, so I mean, Foley, for example. That was, I mean, I know it carries the name of a male person, mm-hmm. but it, the, the early people who were doing what became known as Foley were female because because the studio engineers had become. I mean, you know, I've just been I've been digging into some of the some of that history for a section of this book in terms of um, studio engineers. If you look back to the early days of phonogram recording and and you know sort of wax cylinder recording, and when it started to become studio based. So much of it was fe- females doing the work, you know, but they, they weren't allowed to be named mm-hmm. because they weren't allowed to be in the unions. It was the unions that were a problem. They wouldn't let them join the unions. So they had to have a male name on the on the sort of um, credits and things like that. So often they would just get somebody in the management and call him the studio engineer because they had to have a male, a name of the studio engineer. It had to be male. But all, it was women doing it. So Foley was the same. Lots of the people making the sound in studios for, for early sort of radio and things like that were women. It's just they weren't allowed to have the names on the production because they weren't in the union. It's really sad, you know. So it shouldn't even be called Foley. I don't know who the first one was. I haven't found out yet. But it should have that name, really. Yeah, that's, that's And I know we've just, we've just had the, an anniversary of the, um, the, the final record, haven't we? And just been reading about... I've just forgotten the name, actually. I think it's... it's um, Well, her first name, last name was Killick, but she designed the diamond stylus, which completely changed how we listen, still listen nowadays to to records. And she was, you know, she was ripped off by Pi Records, and she fought them in in the law courts and won. And then they refused to pay, and she died in poverty. And we, so if we're listening, if we're listening to music, anybody, any of your listeners, when we listen to our music on on vinyl, if we still have a vinyl player, mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and all music progression, because it was all linked to that. It's all down to women, really, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's just so sad that we're still, the change is there, it's happening, but it's still glacial sometimes, you know. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I think it's always the case. Um, we humans are very slow to adapt um, to anything. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's, it's on a personal level if you're trying to adapt a new practice or try to live healthy or something like that, that can take years. And sure, if you sure. think on a global scale, um, it's probably been, yeah, it has to be like hundreds of years until that changed. But it's a really important topic and I, um, I'm really looking forward to the book. And it's it's interesting. Well, it might never come out. I'm a terrible writer. <laughs> I, I I need a lot. I'm, I I think I'm dyslexic. I never never had tested, but I I have a kind of form of dyslexia. So yeah, writing maybe takes make an me a long. <laughs> just me rambling on for hours yeah. and hours, getting angry and angry. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> there might be an audience for that. I mean, I, I would listen to it for, for a couple of hours. Well, I think I think just to sort of put a slightly light side to Tristan, I think. One of the problems with this book is I think the history of, of uh, women in field recording shouldn't be written by a white man. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, that's also that's also problematic. So you you'll have to find another writer that gets yeah. the name on the book as well. Yeah, yeah but um, yeah, I, I think that's really important work to to get into that and then to also promote that um, that this is actually what happened um, to try to somewhat correct the written history. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm just. I'm gonna. I've decided I'll start sharing some of the some of the names on like putting little profiles up on social media of who who some of these people were. Some of them are quite well known in certain sections, like folk music. Maud mm -hmm. Carpels, for example, is quite well known to folk musicians because of the collections that she, you know, of manuscripts. But outside of that, lots of those early folk tradition collectors are really super important. It's just they don't have the same. Um, status as somewhere like Lomax, and they should have, you know, they absolutely should have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great. So, yeah, looking forward to those, okay. to those insights yeah. into that. I'm, I'm happy to link it in the episode as well. Thanks. Thank you again for your time. It was really nice talking to you. And um, no problem. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Have a great day. Thank you. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting on patreon.com slash fieldandfoley or ko-fi.com slash fieldandfoley, where you gain early access to episodes in lossless format and can submit questions for our guests. Thank you for listening.